And if they keep doing that unchecked, they are eventually going to be very influential in cannabis legalization. And when you have unlimited resources, there's really not a lot that can be done to stop you. And so in my mind, um, the most important thing to prevent monopolization by big tobacco, which everybody should care about. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Shailene Title, co-founder of Powerball Center. Shailene, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you for having me on. Excited to dive in. Kellen, how are you doing? Doing really good. Really excited to talk about law and regulations surrounding the cannabis industry. How are you, Brian? I'm excited. We've got a lot of topics to hit today with Shailene, but I guess for the record, Shailene, your location... Uh, north of Boston in Massachusetts. So let the record say another East Coaster as the wave continues. So, Shailene, uh, <laughs> for our listeners that aren't familiar about you, can you give a little background about yourself? Sure. Um, so I'm a very longtime cannabis activist. I got started in college a little over 20 years ago working on legalization. And uh, it was obviously very different <laughs> back then. Um, but throughout the past 20 years, um, I've done a lot of advocacy work. I was lucky to work on the first legalization initiative in Colorado and some failed ones before that. Um, I was an entrepreneur starting the first recruiting firm uh, for diversity and inclusion in cannabis in 2013. Um, I practiced law uh, representing small cannabis businesses. And then while I was doing that, I was invited to apply to be a regulator in Massachusetts in 2017. So I did that for three years. And then when I left, I thought it was really important to have a voice representing small and minority-owned businesses in particular at the federal level. So I started a think tank called Parabola Center. We are not funded by... Um, big marijuana money or any type of big corporate money because we thought it was really important to have an organization in that space. So that's what I do now. I'm glad you brought that. I know that's always a big sticking point. And then announcing that is, is really critical so that people are aware. But I want to start kind of earlier on in your career. Was cannabis a big part of your life? Like, how did you migrate into the space? Was it something you always thought you, you would enter into? You know, um, it was just one of those things in college where like you learn about <laughs> different uh, things that you, you may not have been aware of. And it was very clear that the cannabis laws were unfair. I liked to use cannabis. I especially liked to use it around then. And it seemed like everybody around me was um, very much in favor of legalizing regardless of their politics or their party. And so this has been kind of a recurring theme in my career. Um, it just kind of felt like everybody was saying, wow, somebody should do something about this. So I thought, okay, why don't I? And that's kind of how I got started. Did uh, cannabis have any influence on you deciding to go to law school? Or was it kind of like you went to law school and you still um, were just noticing these cannabis laws were unfair and then you just kind of merged the two interests? Oh, 100%. That was the reason why I went to law school. Um, I was really cool. involved <laughs> as a student. Yeah, around that time, Students for Sensible Drug Policy was a pretty influential organization. It, it still is. 
And so um, there were students that were passing medical cannabis laws uh, really as the leaders. They were writing them. They were organizing patients. And so I got to see that and be involved in it. And it was a really cool way to understand that young people can make change, you know, on their own. You don't really need, (laughs) you don't really need anything else except a lot of motivated people. What was the Illinois medical market like back in the day when, when you first got involved in the industry? So I was a part of Illinois Normal and uh, my very first time lobbying was in Illinois. And that was the time when um, I would say legislators were not really ready to hear it. Uh, but we were seeing at that time, this was the early 2000s, we were seeing ballot initiatives passing in other places. Um, I remember Rhode Island really specifically. Uh, But Illinois ended up being the first state, of course, to pass by legislation rather than by ballot initiative. Um, And that happened about 10 years after I started, um, which has been another recurring theme in my career is planting seeds and then seeing them pay off several years later. Yeah, that's the best way. I love that you said that they weren't ready to hear it. So I guess my (laughs) my follow-up question is, are, are they ready to hear it now? Oh, more than ready. I mean, I think the Illinois legislators have done a great job, you know, in the circumstances, being the first to do it. They have gone back and and tweaked the law several times. Um, And I think in general, legislators are very open to hearing about cannabis right now and very interested in hearing about it from a social justice perspective in particular. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So let's stay with Parabol Center and the value it brings. I know you said it's not funded by big cannabis business. Who, who, like, who is the the intention of the organization for, and who does it help? So it's a nonprofit 5013 organization, 501c3 organization, and it is intended to help the population that really every cannabis policy organization says it wants to help, which is what I would describe as historically excluded communities. So certainly small businesses, certainly um, minority owned, those that are owned by communities that have been disproportionately harmed by prohibition, um, farmers, veterans, and then women uh, and people who have otherwise been excluded um, as entrepreneurs. And the reason I mention all of these groups is because I think that they are very much... um, their needs are often very much in contrast to what big companies need. Uh, Not always, but often. And so when you have organizations that are funded by big corporations, they're not able to take those bold, transformative positions that an organization like Parabola Center can. Can you describe some of those positions that your team takes in order to, to advocate on behalf of your clients? Yeah, so they're not our clients um, because we're we're technically a charity. But as a think tank, um, I would give you one short-term and one long-term example. So the short-term example is the Safe Banking Act. Um, we've done a lot of work to try to make sure that if the Safe Banking Act is going to pass, that it has strong provisions that will make sure that these historically excluded businesses are actually able to get banking if they're not able to now, or at least to send us in that direction. So we've done a lot of specific work on that. And then long-term, we're very interested in anti-monopoly work. In other words, we don't want to see the cannabis industry become like so many others where three to five companies control the vast majority of the market 
and treat their workers badly, treat their consumers badly, and kind of, you know, do whatever they want because they have a monopoly or an oligopoly. So we've done a lot of work on federal legislation that would avoid that result. Is there um, a way that safe banking can be drafted so that it, it helps prevent monopolies? Ooh, that's an interesting question. I think the Safe Banking Act is very narrow. And so I don't think that we could prevent monopolies per se, but we could certainly amend it so that it's helping small businesses at least as much as it's helping big businesses. And I think that's what um, the amendments that we've put forth uh, would do. And I'll just uh, suggest if people want to see more specifics, the Cannabis Regulators of Color Coalition, which I'm a founding member of, uh, just put out a panel and a paper going through the specific amendments and Parabola Center provided legal and technical assistance on the paper. That's the kind of thing that we can do because we're not going to know about every single subject, right? Like I'm not a banking expert, but what we can do is help um, as a think tank to make sure that there's someone there who's not a big company lobbyist that's actually representing what the people want uh, on a given situation and then do the legal research, do the model bill drafting and try and make sure most importantly that the public has access to those tools and can advocate for them as well. It's so important that you say those things because we've had voices in the community that make mention that, you know, how am I supposed to compete with these bigger businesses, these big MSOs and these other people lobbying again? So just expanding on that, Shailene, you know, what is our current status today for safe banking? And what do you think is needed to get over the line so that it can be passed on both parties? I'm not a politician or a lobbyist, you know, so I'm not necessarily the expert on that. But I will say that I do feel much more optimistic than I have the past six or seven times that this bill, you know, has been passed by one chamber and failed because I've been very consistently calling for amendments for at least a year. As soon as I sat down and, and read the bill, when my term as a state regulator ended, I realized there were a lot of problems with safe banking and raised them. And uh, to quote myself, people weren't ready to hear it <laughs> at that time. But this year, I think there's just been a change among... Um, both the public and legislators and their staff, where they really want to get this done and they want to make this a bill that is equitable and where the talking points about the bill, right, that it would improve access to banking and financial services for small businesses, you know, improve public safety uh, to make the bill actually do that. And so there have been very robust conversations about amendments. Um, I do think there's openness to amend the bill. And a lot of people ask me when they look at our amendments, you know, what about Republicans? I don't think that Republicans are going to stop this bill from passing just because it has some provisions in it that are going to benefit small businesses. I think that if Republicans support the Safe Banking Act, they're going to continue to support it with equitable amendments as well. The most important thing right now in my mind is if you are part of these populations that are supposedly the beneficiaries of this bill, that you should be paying attention and looking at the amendments um, and certainly talking to your to your representatives in Congress about it. Jaylene, do you think you could elaborate um, for some of our listeners on why safe banking is going to provide kind of a, a more level playing field for small businesses versus the, the larger entities? Uh, well, to be clear, as written, I don't think it would do that. I 
totally oppose safe banking in its current form um, because it, to, to put it succinctly, it gives banks a safe harbor and then leaves it completely up to banks who they're going to work with and how. And the banking and financial services industry does not have a reputation or data showing that it has been equitable or fair. That has to be done through regulation. And so that's why we have these amendments. Yeah, asking them to go against their norm would seem to be kind of counterintuitive to helping all, right? If we if we say this is supposed to help someone, then we should actually make sure that it does help them. Exactly. So let's let's continue on with social equity. Who is building from a statewide perspective? Who is building a social equity program the right way? And who do you think needs to improve? Everybody needs to improve, <laughs> myself <answer>. included. <laughs> I think I I think New York is going to do a good job. Um, on paper, it's a very good program that has um, really taken into account what we have done wrong in other states. So Massachusetts was the first state to have a statewide social equity program. And um, I wrote a whole paper on how I recommend incorporating social equity into legalization based on our experience. But I would say the biggest lesson is that we tried to build a social equity program, get it off the ground and do outreach at the same time that we let the bigger companies just um, start immediately because we wanted to be fair and we wanted to be quick. Um, but what happened was just the difference between those two groups was so vast that it really made it difficult for those smaller businesses to compete. And eventually, I think we recovered from that, but it was a hard lesson and it took years. And so I think that whereas many other states have just kind of copy and pasted that same model um, and a lot of bills that are being funded by larger organizations would even do worse than um, what I've described in Massachusetts. Uh, New York has done the opposite. Um, they really have focused on not only making sure that small businesses have the resources that they need, but that they will be the ones to go first. Now, again, this is all on paper. <laughs> so once we see what plays out on the ground, it could go completely differently. Um, but I, I'm very optimistic about it. Historically speaking, what has been the, the biggest challenge from taking the, the idea on paper in theory and actually implementing it um, on the streets? The timing is a huge one, right? So, so making sure that you are as much crap as regulators get for taking time, that they're taking their time and making sure that um, they're not letting the market get dominated uh, in the meantime. And then also, um, you have to do a lot to gain some trust, right? Because if you go into a community that has been disproportionately harmed by prohibition, and you're like, hey, I'm the government. I know you've been completely oppressed by us in the past, and you have a conviction, and it's ruined your life, and your parents' lives, and your kids' life. But now we want to help. They're not immediately going to be excited this by that, right? Different. It's different. It's different. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Trust me, right? So I think it takes a lot of investment. It takes a lot of coalition building, a lot of outreach. Um, and that's something that regulators have to, to take very seriously and, again, invest in. Start with a system that is fair and open competition to begin with, then move to add in benefits of social equity. Is this order critical to success of a market? That is a question of someone that has done their homework. Yes, <laughs> that is 
absolutely the most critical, critical part. And, and again, that's what I learned in Massachusetts, right? If I could go back and do it again, I would think a lot more about order of operations. Why is it so critical? Well, because it's, it's uh, a lot of people say that social equity programs set people up to fail. Um, you know, and someone who works on these programs, like that's really painful to hear. But I understand why people say that, because if they are watching other companies get a first mover advantage, you know, get, get consumers right away, um, get customers coming to their store, even though they've done nothing right. You know, they just happen to be in the state and open and that's really all they have to offer. They've got bad quality products at high prices, you know, and you're watching that and you're not even able to take advantage of the program yet because it's just being built. I can understand why you would feel like it's it's setting you up to fail. So that's something for us to, to learn from. I've seen that in Massachusetts, cannabis delivery companies need two drivers. Why do they need two, two people in the car? <laughs> yeah, they don't. The answer to that is they don't. Uh, I had a really tough time as a regulator. Um, if you go back and watch the meetings, um, you will like see my blood pressure going up and like my veins <laughs> pumping out of my head because there's some really ridiculous regulations. Um, the worst one is actually that uh, delivery operators actually need to wear a body camera when they make the delivery. Um, which is such an invasion of privacy in my mind. But the reason that we have all of these regulations is because we had to make votes as a commission. And in order to get the majority of votes, we had to have these um, regulations that would, I guess, assuage the concerns of people who are focused on public health and public safety. But the good news is, I think the the plan all along was that we could start with very strict regulations, see how it works. If there's no incidents, um, change them. It's built that way. The regulators have terms. Uh, all five of the original commissioners have now left. I was the only one who made it to the end of my term, in fact. And so you have now new commissioners who can talk to the businesses that are operating, um, understand their point of view, look at the data, and then decide if they want to change regulations like this. Yeah, that's got to be a really challenging compromise. So is that a matter of ensuring the safety of the delivery? Obviously, that adds to the total cost and and hinders the business. Plus, if you're a consumer and two people show up in a car, it's kind of odd, right? If if my Uber driver shows up and he's got a delivery for me and he's got a friend in the front seat, I'm like, this is a joyride gone wrong. So what what is the the point of the compromise? Like, how, How does that work? And what was one of the reasons why that happened? So their view, the the majority that passes regulation, their view was that um, it was simply a safety issue and that if you have cars driving around um, with cannabis making deliveries, that they are a target for robberies. And so as a public safety measure, if you have two people in the car, one person can stay in the car while the other one does the delivery. Let's talk about educating new states so that they can learn. What is the number one thing new states can do to set their market up for success and avoid prior states' mistakes? It's really a matter of education. It's it's really understanding the details. Um, That's definitely why we started the Cannabis Regulators of Color Coalition so that we could talk to each other and explain these things, you know, in small groups. Because uh, it's almost like you have to do two things at the same time. One is communicating with the public at a big picture level, you know, and, and making them feel calm and, and heard. But 
that kind of talking points and messaging is not the actual work. The actual work is um, reading the other states' regulations, looking at their data, and then, um, you know, reflecting that in your own. And that takes a lot of time and effort and investment. And I think for the public that is in a new state, you have to be patient and yes, hold your regulators accountable, you know, ask them what they're doing, make sure they're doing this whole process in public, but also understand that it's not going to happen overnight. And if you put too much pressure on them uh, to do it quickly, then they will simply hand the market over to the larger operators because that's the only way to do it quickly. So staying on a new state um, with limited license or unlimited licenses, should they follow kind of a similar blueprint for implementing social equity, in your opinion, Shailene? I'm not a fan of limited licensing systems or lotteries. Um, I don't think that they're fair. I think they just create this like golden ticket system that's not good for for anyone. And so instead, what I recommend is... um, have no limit on licenses in a, in a state or a jurisdiction, but make sure that one entity or person can only hold so much of the market or only hold a certain number of licenses. That Why? way you open up the... Well, that way you open up the market to more people, more small businesses, and make sure that if someone has the resources to get started early, um, they can. But once they have, for example, in Massachusetts, three retail stores... Um, they're done. Then you stop and you let other people get into the market. I, I think that's so critical because we've had other conversations with larger companies and they discuss that transitioning into newer states that they would only enter in, in certain uh, parts of the vertical because they knew if they, they came in retail first, they'd be kind of tapped out in certain areas. And I thought that was so telling from a strategic standpoint of the, the fact that if you control too much of the market, how, how much you can dominate in a limited license state. Exactly, exactly. And that's why we see so much lobbying for limited licenses. Big tobacco and alcohol companies are making significant investments into cannabis, and even large conglomerates are openly expressing interest into the industry. Left unchecked, the scramble for market share threatens to undermine public health and safety and undo bold state-level efforts to build an equitable cannabis marketplace. Why do you think left unchecked that, that this could happen? Were you quoting me there? I was quoting you there. (laughs) I was like, yes, what a great question. And then realized you were quoting me. Okay. um, Why do I think that left unchecked? This is a problem. Yeah. Because I think that we are set up to create a monopoly unless we put specific guardrails in place to prevent a monopoly from happening. I mean, that sounds easier said than done, right? I mean, I can't imagine with all the shell structures that is currently set up that preventing a monopoly isn't easily done. So what are steps that we can do today in order to prevent, let's say, five, 10 years from now, you know, companies not having too too much of a market share? Um, actually, I think some parts are easy. I think that like they're sort of presented as as difficult because if we do them, it's gonna it's gonna hurt a lot of the companies that are like funding legalization efforts and a lot of profits. But for example, the, the limits I just described that we have in Massachusetts, where you can only have three of each type, uh, definitely enforcement takes a lot of investment. And it also takes education to make sure that smaller businesses um, understand that they should not agree to predatory relationships. Um, but that's definitely something we could do nationally is put a limit on the number of licenses or the, the portion of the market that one entity can hold. We could also disqualify big tobacco 
because when you are in charge of um, issuing a license to a cannabis business, typically you look at the people involved, you look at, um, as part of the application, you look at their criminal history and almost all, actually all states have a process where if the criminal history makes you concerned that the person is not suitable to hold a cannabis license, you don't grant them a license. It's a, it's a disqualification. And so we could do the same thing um, with the same principles where if you are part of a tobacco company that is documented to have lied to the public, to have manipulated your product, to have defrauded your customers, and um, as a result of all of that, killed people, then you should not be allowed to enter the cannabis market. Sounds good in theory, right? Yeah, I was trying to think like how, like, is that something you think we can actually get forward and, and accomplish? Is that, and I guess the second question, if if proposed, do you think that's something that could be accepted? Not only do I think that's something that we could do and that would be accepted, I think it's the only way that we're going to prevent domination by big tobacco because they are certainly um, openly making their moves now uh, I don't think that they are very influential in um, the political process, but so they are funding um, cannabis events, they're sponsoring activist events, they are hiring influential cannabis activists and leaders. And if they keep doing that unchecked, they are eventually going to be very influential in cannabis legalization. And when you have unlimited resources, there's really not a lot that can be done to stop you. And so in my mind, um, the most important thing to prevent monopolization by big tobacco, which everybody should care about, um, you know, if you're a business that wants to work with other cannabis businesses, you don't want to see a monopoly. Um, if you're a big cannabis business now, um, you will be dwarfed <laughs> by big tobacco. Uh, there's a lot of different people who should care about this. We should not um, legitimize big tobacco's participation in the industry. And um, we have to take that hard line now. And I say that again, as somebody who has been doing this for 20 years and can often see um, what's coming down the line a few years ahead. Um, I'm saying from that point of view that this is the most important thing to be paying attention to right now. What do we do with the companies that are already backed by big, big tobacco? Are they grandfathered in? How does that work? You know, like Kronos is sitting right. on what a billion of tobacco money right now and just in cash waiting to deploy it from a federal perspective. Um, is it something where now they're not allowed to have licenses? I mean, I know they've already acquired uh, brands that are operating in the US market. So it just becomes challenging. You know, Shailene, like how do we prevent them from being involved when they're already kind of got their fingers in it? You know what I mean? Right. Well, I think that the investment so far is very small from what it would be if we don't take these measures down the line. And so that's why we have to stop start now because federal legalization isn't going to happen, um, certainly this session. And I don't see it happening in the short term at all. Sorry. And so it will take uh, many years to design that system. It will take a lot of unraveling of relationships. But again, this isn't new. Marijuana regulation is new, but antitrust laws and anti-monopoly laws are not new. For the everyday average consumer who operates in the industry, what can they look out for to see the signs of big tobacco making their way into cannabis? Is it the large investments like Kellen spoke about or other 
more under the radar techniques that they may be used that, you know, you can provide an example on that you've seen in the past that could be an early indicator that this is happening sooner rather than later? Um, that's a great question. Well, this is very, they're very good at hiding their, <laughs> their steps. And so I think most people don't even know about the big tobacco front organizations right now. I would say two things, actually three things. So one, if you're a consumer, um, just pay attention to what you're buying and where it's coming from. That's just a really good practice in general. And it's going to become more important in the, the coming years. Um, you know, don't rely on advertising to educate you. Second, um, definitely follow Parabola Center. I think we're the only organization that's kind of got a watchdog role uh, at the moment on, on those activities. And then third, if you call your federal representatives, they are going to care about this issue. I actually have a lot of legislators that I've talked to that couldn't care less about cannabis, definitely didn't care about social justice. But then when I started talking about big tobacco, they were like, oh, Jewel, Big Tobacco, Altria, what are they doing? And they really cared um, because for some reason, no, well, I know why. The reason is that they've done all of this harm to legislators' constituents already. They care. And so that would be the third thing is just contact your legislator directly and tell them that you're worried about Big Tobacco taking over cannabis. They probably haven't heard that before. They're probably only hearing kind of the same story from cannabis businesses who can afford lobbyists. And so if they hear that for the first time from their constituents, it's going to make a big impact. What is one rule or regulation you wish all states would adopt universally? I would like to hear your thoughts on that as well. Well, the first one is just the, the limits on licenses, but I, I won't belabor the point on that. I think universal labeling would be great. I think it's kind of silly that we have so many different label requirements. And I think a lot of them are not in line with um, best public health practices in terms of what consumers should be seeing. I think the Massachusetts labels, for example, really go overboard. They're too long. The font is too small. You can't find the information you're looking for. And so if we really had um, public health input into one good label and it was consistent from state to state, that would do a lot of good for consumers, I think. Yeah, I mean, that would make a massive difference, right? It turns out if you go from New York to, to California, you shouldn't have to be like, I don't know what any of this information is. Uh, Kellen, what do you think? Uh, potency caps on flour. I think that the conversation is focused on potency right now and consumers make uh, purchasing decisions. And I don't think that's the right metric uh, to be making purchasing decisions. I mean, you go buy edibles, right? You get 10 edibles. All the edibles are fixed concentrations in each one. It's dosed out. They figured it out with edibles, but in flour, I can go buy a gram of flour that tests at 30% or a gram of flour that tests at 15%. Um, I just think that standardizing those is going to be the first step to like normalizing the industry, right? Like I don't go buy Jack Daniels and it's different concentration every time. You know what I mean? So I think that that's probably one, one thing that needs to happen from a, a just kind of normalizing the industry across state lines, at least. What do you think, Brian? I think limited licenses, Shailene, I think we could keep killing this because it's ridiculous, right? This is the Willy Wonka golden ticket style where like, if you've got one of the, the assets inside, I mean, it is invaluable to opening up early in the market. I'm going to take the other side real quick on this Go whole limited it. license conversation. Because um, I've operated in the unlimited license standpoint and it's an absolute 
nightmare, right? I worked in Washington and every company and their mother gets a license and you go into a store and it's 7,000 different brands. It's, it's a straight dogfight, right? And it's as capitalistic, it's pure capitalism, right? And you talk about like people playing dirty pool. The most dirty pool I've ever seen get played is in unlimited license states. I mean, I, I we have people up in Michigan that are talking about insane amounts of distillate from Canada being infused into the market. It creates a ton of challenges regulating the industry because now this new entity in the government has to regulate 50,000 different companies that are all startups, right? Versus a limited license state. And I know that it's not like fair in terms of how limited licenses, limited license states are rolled out. But the other side of that coin, it does create a massive mess from a regulation standpoint, right? Like Colorado, when they first rolled it out, we didn't roll out unlimited licenses. To get a license, it was 500 grand and all these things. And it does create that barrier to entry. But I think that the other side of the conversation isn't addressed enough, right? Like it's a massive nightmare. I mean, California, they've redone their regulatory group five, six times. What now it's the DCC, right? They had two different divisions. I think it just creates a nightmare from an unlimited license standpoint, from regulations, shortcuts. I mean, now you're talking companies that are manufacturing products, taking shortcuts, getting them on the shelves. You're putting consumers' health at risk too, right? It's just, it's really, really hard to regulate that many different entities when you're starting a whole new industry. And that's my perspective, my soapbox. I'm done with it. Um, That's it. That's yours, Aileen, if you want it. Yeah, I want to hear it. I love talking to people who have been in Washington because that's such an interesting experience that's so different from Massachusetts. And you had, yeah, you have no out-of-state investment, right? And you have no vertical integration in Washington. Is that right? Yeah, uh, you can have, like, you can be vertical up into owning a retail license. So you can't own retail, but you can own the supply chain all the way up. And I mean... You may not legally be able to with one person, but then it creates all of these like loopholes and like DBAs and shell companies where like you have this massive conglomerate of 20 different companies that are all shell company on shell company. And this company owns a cultivation license and this one owns a cultivation license. And they're just happen to be on the same property, but they're different companies. So like it just forces these, these entities into playing these crazy, crazy complex games. Yeah, we have a wealth of information there that we should be using um, when it comes to crafting a federal framework. And I talk to small businesses in Washington and they tell me that exact story. And uh, it's really helpful because, you know, in in Massachusetts, like we just, we don't have, (laughs) we don't have very many small operators at all. And in the real limited license states, like they couldn't even be there at all. You know, and and here we have a few, but they started late. But I think, we can learn from that, right? Like when we, like I said, when we enforce our license limits here, uh, it did take a ton of investments and it still does to unravel those conglomerate shell company loophole situations. And then we also have to encourage people to, um, to, to basically snitch when they see it happening to yeah. regulators, right? And I think that is helpful because now we can see both of those models and then have a a chance to actually craft something at the federal level that takes real life experience into account. It's pretty beautiful that uh, we were able to create all these different Petri dishes from uh, an experiment standpoint, at least socially, right? 
Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what frustrates me. That, that's why I started to think tank, because when I look at the federal bills right now, they don't take the state experiences into account. Like that work just hasn't like been done. What? We, like we have time to do it, but we like, we better get started now. Yeah, they're like, they're like, states are doing this. We had no idea. <laughs> we'll do our own thing. <laughs> let's do a, let's do a quick rapid fire. Daily. Wait, can I talk yeah. about the potency caps real quick? Yeah, go yes, for it, please. I just wanted to say I, I really agree with you. And I think that um, that's actually pretty brave in my mind to say. I think that's a pretty controversial position really to I'm say that we need potency caps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. I did a talk um, at a guest lecture at Stanford like two weeks ago, and I had never gotten into an argument with the student before, but I said I could, I said I agree with potency caps for very much the same reason. And the student just like freaked out at me because people really think that once you start talking about potency caps that, you know, it's the, um, it's the like prohibition you know, 2.0 coming in, but that's really not the case. If we're going to regulate this, we have to regulate it well. So I just, I admire you for saying that. I think it was brave. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm drinking moonshine before and I don't think I'll ever do it again. You know, like, you know, it's not fun. It's a personal choice there, bud. <laughs> oh, you, you, you've been sipping on your moonshine a lot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm moving into the rapid fire. I'm excited. Shailene. True or false, states should allow medical operators to switch to recreational. False. Under the radar state you think where the market will be bigger than most believe. North Carolina. True or false, a successful cannabis market is one that is opened as fast as possible. False. Legalizing cannabis federally will solve industry's current problems of inequality access. Ooh, false, false, false. True or false, all states should allow some version of home grow. True. Better chance of happening first, Michigan beating Ohio State in football or some form of banking being passed in cannabis? <laughs> banking. Which outside industry titan do you think is poised to be a major threat in cannabis? Outside industry titan? Yeah. Uh, can you make that multiple choice? Can be a big tobacco company, a big alcohol company, a big tech company. Who do you think that is not currently operating in cannabis are you most fearful of can come in and dominate cannabis? Uh, none of them. We're going to hold them all off with anti-monopoly laws. I love it. What is one factor statistic that would shock people working in the cannabis industry? The regulators don't know anything about cannabis, typically. Like, they come into the job, they don't know what a tincture is, they don't know what any of the products are, and they're just learning it on the fly. You accomplished a Myself ton. included. Excluded, yeah. sorry. <laughs> There's so much going on. You accomplished a ton at the Cannabis Control Commission in Massachusetts. What single item are you most proud of and what do you wish you would have changed? I'm most proud of the way that those limits were enforced. Um, I really think that some companies came into Massachusetts ready to dominate the market and just left because it wasn't worth it for them. Um, and I'm also proud of the activist community in Massachusetts that was very influential in the way that laws got passed and they pressured certain companies to drop lawsuits. We don't have the social equity lawsuit problem that other states have because um, our activist community was so informed and engaged and organized. What I wish we would have done differently is just taking more time. You know, there was a lot of, I would go as far to, as to call it abuse from the public, you know, when, when like it was starting to be a, a year that had passed and they were like, get, get the retail stores open, do whatever you have to do. And like really just um, being uh, 
hard to ignore, I guess, but I wish that we would have ignored them and just built the um, program that most of the voters wanted to see, you know, no matter how long it took, because here we are five years later, you know, nobody would have noticed, nobody would remember now, you know, if it took an additional year and we had a ton of small businesses and, and social consumption and, um, just something that really respected the dignity of cannabis consumers. I wish we would have taken our time and done that. Before I, I was researching you, I was very upset that New York has taken so long. And after kind of reading some of the information you've put out, I've slightly had a different approach and feel a little more comfortable that we are taking our time and hope and hope that we actually get it right uh, versus just rushing through and getting started. So I thank you for that. That's great to hear. 20 years from now, we will look back and say, that was barbaric. I can't believe we did that in cannabis. What is that? Fired people for using cannabis. Barbaric. Barbaric. Since you've been in the cannabinoid industry, what has been the biggest misconception? That all cannabis users are the same and that they're all heavy users. Before we do predictions, we ask all of our guests, if you could sum up your experience in the cannabinoid space in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass on to the next generation, what would it be? We have the power and don't look at other industries or lobbyists or um, subjects and try to learn from them because we are very much our own movement. Um, we've been very successful just listening to the people and we got to keep doing that. All right. Prediction time. Kellen, are you with us? Oh, I'm here. Oh, beautiful. All right. You came in time for the prediction. All right. Shailene, oh, no, thank goodness. Some in the traditional market have expressed they don't receive opportunities to contribute. What can the traditional market do to make itself better heard by policymakers? So I would say the same advice for anybody that wants to be heard by policymakers, which is create a platform for yourself so that they have to take you seriously. And that's not hard. That's just getting a lot of very organized and engaged people together. Um, who care about something, making sure you're all speaking in a most the most unified voice as possible, and then talk to the press, get on social media, and then talk to the regulators with specifics. You know, the two or three points that you want. Don't be abusive to the regulators. Just be nice, be honest, be authentic, and ask for those two or three things. That'll get you heard. Um, I, I agree, Shailene, with what you're saying, and I would take it one step further. I, I would say that the people who want their voices to be heard need to show their face. I think one of the biggest things that I've heard from some of them is that they're fearful of, of coming forward and expressing their interests because they're fearful of repercussions for, for their previous history operating in the space. And I would say that it's really hard to take guidance from someone, even if they are the most informed on the decision from a, a person who has, let's say, a Twitter egg as their profile photo. I think, you know, revealing yourself and coming forward and standing behind what you've done as an individual in the space, I think you need to have a, a, a face to the name. And I think that provides credibility. So I would say feeling more comfortable kind of rising to the forefront and operating uh, above ground and allowing, you know, people to see what you have accomplished, which means maybe being vulnerable, but also more importantly, being more transparent. I think that's right. Yeah, there's definitely special considerations if you're in the legacy market and I'm not going to um I'm not going to tell someone if you are uncomfortable 
making yourself visible, you know, that that's not valid. But as far as how to be the most effective, typically, yes, the more transparent you are and the more you use your real name and you're authentic, the more effective you're going to be in policy change. Yeah, I can't imagine taking uh, information from cannabis user 725. It's like, all right, well, how, how will I reach you, cannabis user 725? I, I can't <laughs> imagine that's the most helpful. Kellen, are you here to weigh in? I am here. Can you hear me? Yeah. You want to go for it? Yeah, I was going to say, I just agree with what Shailene was saying as far as uh, being heard. And I think the thing that uh, the strategy that sticks out in my mind as far as getting more attention is the same strategy that was implemented like with the civil rights movement. I think a lot of people are very angry with how the industry has been treated by regulators over the last hundred years. But I don't think like responding in an aggressive manner um, is the right way to approach it. I think it's like uh, <clears throat> we just got to continue to take baby steps and kind of play the nice guy card um, until it works, if you will, you know? Yeah, it's going to take time. Uh, I think that there's a lot that needs to be done. And if it's not done the right way, like Shailene said, if we rush to open the market, speed is not our friend there. Because like you were saying, it's hard to walk back. It's hard to add additional regulations on top of. It's better to start a little more regulated and then lightly remove them as you go at least from just a safety and efficacy standpoint, in order to make sure that we're not jeopardizing, you know, consumer health and, and hurting an industry that already has massive stigmas uh, against themselves. Well, let me just clarify, though. I'm not saying that um, you have to be civil all the time, you know, or, or take baby steps necessarily. You should be asking for whatever bold proposals you want to see, you know, ask for them. But the key is to do it in a way that's going to build your power. And yeah, being abusive is not going to get you power. But what will build your power is if you are building a large coalition and you're specific in what you ask for and you're always offering a solution, right? Like you're right. You just said, you know, a lot of people are angry, um, but just, you know, channeling your anger isn't going to get you any results. If you take your anger and you take your indignation and you turn it into the actual solutions that you want to see and you ask for them, that's when you're going to get results. Awesome. So Shailene, for our listeners, they want to learn more. They want to get in touch. Where can they find you? So I'm very active on Twitter, just at Shailene Title. And then you can find Parabola Center on Twitter and Instagram. If you go to parabolacenter.com, you can find all of our reports and model bills and tools. Those are all free for everybody. Awesome. We will link all those up in the show notes. Thanks so much for taking time. This was really fun. It was fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, host of Casually Baked the Podcast. If you're curious to explore the highly responsible side of cannabis, farming, and legalization, I'm here to help lighten the stigma and build your canna confidence. Download episodes now of Casually Baked the Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And journey with me through the evolving cannabis culture and discover how and why people like you are adding cannabis to their wellness toolkit. It's time to get casually baked.